Welcome to Coach to Scale, how modern leaders build coaching cultures. I'm your host, Matt Benelli. Join me as we build a community of like-minded professionals who share the belief that effective coaching improves the performance of every team member. Our mission is to help leaders become better coaches. The Coach to Scale podcast is sponsored by Coachem, the world's first AI coaching execution platform that leverages evidence-based coaching to increase quota attainment. And with that, let's get started. I'm excited to have a conversation with today's guest. You'll see that he has a unique ability to identify challenges, but also to frame them in a way that's easily understood and then provide thoughtful ways to approach and address them. He studied at BYU and UT Dallas, where he earned his doctorate of management science. And before his academic life, he was founder of several companies. So he was entrepreneur in that arena. Uh, he's a founder and director for the Center of Professional Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. He's an author of a powerful book, The Sales Innovation Paradox, which we'll link to and talk about. And, uh, and that book was authored in 2022, so very recent. Dr. Howard Dover, welcome to Coach to Scale. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here. Dr. Dober, I'm so excited to have this conversation between the, our initial call and today. I cuddled up with that book. Uh, I, I dog-eared it, uh, which is kind of my style, and I go back to it and try to remember it all, which I can't, but, um, but I'm trying. And one of the things that I, I clung to right away was that you thoughtfully named the sales innovation paradox as a challenge you know, and identified that as a challenge that we've been trying to solve for a while. And so I really want to dig into that um, in, in a second. But before that, the question that I asked to start off is really a, a myth buster question, which I think will get us into this. Dr. Dover, what is a, a myth that you see prevalent out there in the sales and sales leadership universe that has persisted for a long time, but you think is misguided and you know, perhaps uh, isn't even real? but that myth exists. We should scale best practices. Scale best practices. Um, I think, uh, so that's a myth, uh, myself included. How do we, why do we find what's going well and scale that? So why is that a myth? So it's, it, it, what I see is, so in, in, in all myth busting, there's half truth, right? There's a truth to it, but there's also in the implementation, there's the challenge and where the myth gets created. It's not that I'm against best practices. We have to train people, right? I mean, you have to, it, chaos doesn't generate revenue. Well, when you're lucky, it does, but you know, just go to a casino and then, but even that's strategically designed, right? Um, but a lot of what we do in sales is tactical best practice, right? I see something, it works, therefore I'm going to, to codify it, I'm gonna create a structure around it, I'm gonna train for it, I'm gonna deploy it, it's gonna be the way we do business here. And the, the reason this is a challenge for us is the fact that most of this concept of best practice and scaling is coming from the manufacturing sector, right? This idea that we can get efficiencies through uh, consistency and, and repetition and, and scaling. The, the challenge in sales is that we're working with two pieces of information which are not static. The first one being the salesperson themselves. 
Salesperson is a human that makes decisions. And then we're interacting with a buyer or buyers, usually it's buyers, plural, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. also are human beings with choice. And so when we then start trying to scale uh, a, a process to take an individual through, we have a lot of variableness. We have a variable with the human who we're trying to teach to do what we're scaling to. And then we also have the person who's receiving that process. That it, it, so really, we have to look back and say, well, is this tactical? Is it tactical to achieve an objective? And a lot of what we've seen over the last probably decade or so have been tactical hacks. Right? We like hacking things. Hey, I hacked this, I hacked that, I hacked that. Well, you know, if, if you take that word and you throw it over to the customer and say, how do you like being hacked? They're going, well, I quit, quit hacking me. And so actually, when we look at the Gartner research and say the, re- the rep-free experience that the buyer is requesting, the, cre- the buyer it used to be 60%, I think it's now above 70 or closing in on 80% of buyers say, I prefer a rep-free experience. I think that means quit hacking me. The quit. hacking isn't giving me any value. And so if you follow, if you believe in the, the axiom, you know, uh, prospects buyers for their reasons um, on yeah. their timelines all the time, then, and you look at how we've gone to market, there's a disconnect there. Would you say, I think that's where you're going with that. Well, I think most go to market strategies. If, if we go back into the history and I, I, I kind of described this in the sales innovation chapter. Um, if we go back and we look at uh, the first, the first big trend line, I would say, would be Challenger, right? Challenger, mm-hmm. at least in my 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 time frame here in the last decade or two, Challenger was a big moment, and so everybody everybody tried to scale Challenger. Well, I mean, if you really understand Challenger, you got to start asking the question: Can you really scale? Can you really scale Challenger now as a framework? You can, but most people were using it as a training concept, and as a training concept without a complete reinvention of your go-to-market model around Challenger and insights, right? The, the concept mm-hmm. of developing product innovations based off insights. Most people said, oh, this is cool. Let's train people to be challengers. They didn't do anything new with product. They didn't do anything new with marketing. They just said, let's, let's buy the little red book and let's go, let's go yell at our customers. Let's take control. Um, oh, and, and, let's pop, so, and, let, and let's hire people right out of school to do that. Oh, of course. And that's not necessarily wrong or bad. It's actually, you can teach them to do it exactly that way. And then we went into, so then the next big wave I'd say would be social selling. Oh, let's use social because, you know, social, you know, let's be social sellers. Um, And, and then, you know, of course we moved into this, this idea of cadence, right? It's touch points. We got to touch people, multiple channels, multiple places, all around outbound. Um, And, and so we, we kind of went into this SDR AE, period of time. I, I, I understand I'm being very tech-centric, but if you look at the data in the book, it shows that we actually went, we kind of over-rotated on this idea of, of sales development and SDR reps. Um, and this was collectively, this wasn't just tech sector, this is across the whole country. Um, we started hiring more and more and more SDRs and sales development people because what we did, and, and it's not anybody's fault, but this is kind of the journey. If you take the journey, we, we had predictive revenue. And uh, Aaron Ross and, and, 
and Mary Lou Tyler that wrote a great book saying, hey, this is how Salesforce got to the first hundred million. So a lot of companies said, hey, this, this is the game plan, right? This is, oh my goodness, it's scalable. It's a best practice, it's scalable. So let's take that best practice and let's scale it. And then Trish Bartuzzi put out a great book. I, I really do think it's a great book. Um, it's the, um, the Sales Development Playbook. I, I, I may have that wrong. Yes. Um, it's been a while since I've, I've thought about that book. And she did a great contribution into the space, which is saying, okay, how do you divide up the labor, right? You know, where's the decision point? A lot of good tactical concepts in there on how to scale up a BDR-AE combination. Um, great mechanics on how to scale. So in the process, we all started doing SDR work. Now, so I, I'm going to go into very specific. Now I'm an economist, so I did. I, if you'll, I, everybody, will allow me to be an economist for a moment. The 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 reason this should work is this concept of what we call economies of scale. So if we take a division of labor and we have the same person doing the same job over and over and over again, they should get better at it. That's, that's the concept, right? Yep. So I, I get efficiencies over time. So if I have somebody doing the, the development work and they do it over and over and over again, we should get efficiencies of scale. And if I have the AE doing the demos, they should get efficiencies of scale. And we divide that labor and we get them specialized. And that should work except for a couple of problems. How long does the average AE stay in the role? How long does the average S SDR stay in the role? How long does the average manager stay in the role? You could probably go, go there. It all breaks down. It all breaks down because we don't get the efficiencies of scale. We never get to the moment where they're efficient. And when you when you talk about the the buyer journey and how it's evolved to where uh, I want to do my research, I want to make my decision without the salesperson more and more. How does that jive with the division of labor, which is I'm going to have an SDR. And, and he or she is going to try to uncover a challenge that you have, a problem that you're trying to solve, and then set this appointment for this other person. So instead of one salesperson, you have two to three salespeople that you interact with on the cycle. And what you're trying to go, you can do Google maybe online at night. Um, you have to wait you know, a week or two to get this information and go through the, the charade. That, that seems like that's a, a, a conflict in terms of what the buyer's journey has evolved to. And no offense to, to, to Max and, and the people over at Sales Hacker, but, um, you know, and, and then there's a community of people who are like, hey, how do we hack to get the appointment? How do we hack to get the demo? How do we hack? How do we hack? How do we hack? How do we, how do, we do what little we can do to get to the objective? How do we get to it as fast as possible? What's the trick? What's the... And so lots of people became, hey, I, if I do this and this and this, it gets me an appointment faster. And what we didn't necessarily look at, and this is where the paradox comes into place, right? It's the same thing when we deploy technology. We're sometimes going for the wrong metric. So we, we say, hey, if I do, see, because when, sometimes our compensations aren't aligned. If I'm, if I'm comping a meeting, I'm comping a demo, but I'm not necessarily comping the overall revenue. Um, I may get I may get bad business. I actually get get an install, but I never. They were sold something that isn't real, so they actually end up canceling. So I actually end up with no revenue. So these things can break down so fast. I'm not saying everybody does this, but you can see how it can break down because there's a 
there's what we call perverse incentives all over the system. And by the way, if I'm planning to leave in the next year, because, you know, I'm just doing this job till I can get an AE job. I'm just doing the AE job till I can get, you know, moved up into a, an enterprise level account. I'm, I'm only doing this job until I can get something else. The way the thinking was prior to 2022 was, hey, I'm just doing this job till I can get my next job. At some point, you got to look at this and say, well, the poor customer, what, the poor customer is being processed is being processed through a process. And so this is definitely the case in SaaS world, but where do all these SaaS people go when they're finished with SaaS? They actually go into other industries and try to replicate the model in non-SaaS. And to a degree, they actually have a lot of success until they don't. But the poor <laughs> customer sitting on the other side going, man, this is getting ugly over here. Because I have a buying process and a journey that I have to get done. I have jobs that I got to get done. Gardner's got some great stuff on the jobs to be done framework. So, so, um, so thinking that, that through what the reality is that the AE and the SDR, they want to get to the next role. And that's, a pro that's problematic. Well, what's going to change? Do, does leadership need to adopt more of a model like uh, Rick Pitino at Kentucky when he knows he's getting these uh, college basketball players for one year um, and they're going to the pro. They're not there for four years. He knows that they're coming to Kentucky in large part they, they, one year and go, or is something else going to change uh, in, in the business? Because it seems that something needs to change. Well, I think, I, I think it has. I think what's happened is uh, what I'm hearing on the street um, and I'm hearing it pretty loud and clear in Q4 this year is that outbound is just I'm going to use the word impotent. Outbound is impotent. It's not, it's not producing what it used to produce. The SDRs are not getting the meetings. People are not agreeing to the meetings. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but uh, it just isn't working. I, I, I heard you say uh, cold calling is dead if you don't cold call. Um, and, well, yeah, and it's, 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 yeah. It's, I, we had a debate years ago back when social selling was the hot thing. Um, and uh, Jamie Shanks agreed to debate um, Brian Flanagan, who uh, is, was with Zig Ziglar Corporation for years, worked as Zig's right-hand guy, mm -hmm. funny guy. Mm -hmm. He's from Louisiana too, and he's hilarious. And, and so, you know, Brian's, Brian's a little bit older and Jamie's a little bit younger. And, and uh, you know, beautiful moment. This was probably eight years ago, and and Jamie said, "Hey, old man, I want to tell you something. Cold calling's dead." And 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 Brian, without even just skipping a beat, said, "Well, young 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 punk, you know, let me tell you something, young whippersnapper. Uh, I'm as old as dirt, and and cold calling has always been dead because people don't like to prospect. Yeah. Prospecting's always been dead, except for the people who succeed." People who succeed prospect. <laughs> uh, and, so, and, 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 re, and, and social and email and, and yeah, reach out all, all the different ways. Well, and, and I guess that's the thing. It's, it's the, the challenge is we went through a decade of, and I, and I really want to call it the hack decade, right? The, the decade and a half of the hackers. And everything was really about, I'm going to hack this role long enough to learn how to get to the next role. Then I'm going to hack that role 
And so we got away with doing stuff. We, we, we lived in a good enough world because as long as I was good enough, I got to the next role. And what's amazing to me is, is the way we teach our students at UTD, we don't teach them a good enough world. We teach them that the buyer has a journey. They have jobs to be done. They either know what their problem is or they don't know what the problem is. If they know what the problem is, they're either an active search or they're not in active search. So they either care or they don't care. And, and then, then we go further down into that concept of, can I even get to a, understanding the common requirements that I need, which I'm just following the jobs to be done framework by Gartner. And then can I even get to the vendor selection process? Can I even build consensus? And this is where Matt Dixon's current work is so great uh, and Ted McKenna on the jolt effect to say that actually if we look at the the status quo, that um, half the status quo we could actually fix if we did things differently. But the other half is never going to change. You just can't fix it. And and so when we start looking at this and start breaking down, if you, if you think about it from a segmentation standpoint to say, when I go do outbound, I need to understand that I have segments of buyers that are in different stages of a journey and either they have no clue or they know what a problem is, but it's the wrong problem. This is where I love some of the work Beck Holland's doing right now around misdiagnosis. What a, what a great contribution she's doing around the buyer has diagnosed, but it's the wrong problem. There's actually a different problem. You've got to help the, you, you got to be the doctor that actually shows them that they've actually improperly diagnosed themselves. So either they found the right problem or they haven't found the right problem. They're in search, they're not in search, or they're incapable of making change organizationally, not individually. We're talking about B2B. I'm incapable with the current composition of my buying team. And the beautiful thing is today is we have a lot of technology that will give us some insight into the buying team even before we get deep into the equation. So if I look in a disk profile, because I've got I've got disk tools that will give me predictive disks. Mm -hmm. And if I got a blocker, this is coming back to the challenger customer mm -hmm. work done done by CEB and and Brent, Brent and Nick and and Matt and company. I probably mm -hmm. missed somebody, so I probably offended somebody just there. But the 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 blocker, if you have a blocker, you're you're gonna have a problem. If you, if you have somebody who's a skeptic, you're not going to have the same problem. Well, there's some work that's been done by Scott Gillum, which is just brilliant because he's mapped these new personality profile tools to the challenger customer and said, wait a minute, we can predict uh, deal management review. And, and, and then if you take Matt's work and you say, wait a minute, we can actually predict whether you're capable of making a decision, whether you're capable of change. And Hank Barnes does some great work on this too over at Gartner around an ability of a, of a company to actually adopt technology and make change. So if I bring all that together and I say, well, now when I get into prospecting, I'm not going to treat everybody the same because why would I? Why would I? I know your personality type and I could maybe get some feel for where are you at the journey um, are you, which job are you in? Which job are you trying to perform? And even when I'm doing my, my discovery, my discovery is based off of things like, well, I know you have a job to be done. What is the problem? I, what is the problem you think you need to solve? 
if that's not the problem I can solve for, then I have to deploy a challenger concept at that stage. If it is, then I have to make sure that I understand that is everybody on the same page on this? And let me look at the personality profiles of the buying team. Are you even capable of making change? I'm not going to ask you that question. I'm going to assess that issue. When we do these kinds of things, we crack. We crack the sales innovation paradox and we end up with exponential performance. So, so Dr. Dover, so the sales innovation paradox, um, you wrote the book, uh, I believe in what you're saying. Can we define that? And and what is the sales innovation paradox? So what, what was happening is I was sitting on the sidelines for a, quite a few years watching companies ramp up sales orgs and then fire the leaders who did it. And I said, well, that that's kind of depressing. These are good people, good leaders. They did exactly what they were told to do, and they were canned for it. And then I saw the technology starting to go on. So I started going to conferences and I saw a presentation that showed that when we deploy technology, we can get a 5X, we can get a 10X, we can even get a, you know, we can get a 3X, we can get a 4X. And I'm going, wow, this means we should be reducing the number of salespeople we hire and increase what we're paying them. And this sounded good to me. I said, well, this is good. I can train, right? I, 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 so my first thought is I can train my students to be technologically adaptive and and have those skills to be agile and technologically enhanced so that they can go out and be a, a 5X and a 10X performer. Well, the good news is that happened. My students went out there and outperformed their peers because they knew how to use social selling. They knew how to use Navigator. They knew how to use... AI tools, <clears throat> they knew how to do things. They knew how to harness technology. But here's where it got weird. They often left their companies and or they were reprimanded by their managers for outperforming their peers because they didn't stand in line to the current scalable, com the, the compliance framework that the sales enablement people put out to scale the best practice, they were breaking outside of the parameters of the org that they were in because they were actually leapfrogging the org. And so the org either, now I'll, I'll, I'll tell you not everybody, the best thing that I, the best one I ever saw was one of our, one of our alumni went to Adobe and he outperformed everybody in North America's first year. And in his second year, he outperformed everybody in the world. Now, kudos to Adobe. They put him on a plane and had him go to every, every, uh, every hub of excellence in yeah. North America. To scale and, the best practice. No, he, no, no scale the best practice. He put on a roadshow. Okay. Two to three days at every place and all the leaders said, talk to us about what you're doing. Talk to us about what, what do you do differently than everybody else? Do you think, can we, can we scale this? And he said, some of this can't be scaled. This is... This is motion. This is learning. This is this is framework. It isn't. It isn't tactical. It's it's the way I'm doing it. It's not how. It's it's not. It's not the motion. It's the understanding of why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's the agility that I've developed. So that would have to be trained. Some of this is trainable. Yes, A certain amount of the the cadences maybe, and and some of the other things I do. But some of it has to be a retraining of the people. So. Um, 
And then COVID hit and they, they called that short. But most companies were like, I, you know, I, I'd get people who'd call me up and say, hey, I'm outperforming all my peers by 6X. In fact, I, one classic story, this kid was not the sharpest kid in my class. In fact, I was shocked when she contacted me and said, oh my gosh, I'm going to so, be so freaking rich. And I said, <laughs> well, good for you. And she said, nobody knows what they're doing. I look on my right, I look on my left. I have no idea what these people are doing. They're doing stuff. I, I, I can't even fathom doing what they're doing. They just do stuff, but they don't know why. She goes, I'm focused. I'm getting huge deals and I'm getting them all the time. And she goes, my manager's breathing down my neck. My, the people next to me are upset at me. My VP is saying, how do we find more of them? And she eventually left it due to hostility. So what, what I hear you saying, and I'm not sure if I'm hearing it right, is that the, the people that have 6X, the, the people that have performed and set themselves apart are getting chastised for not doing it within the box. And I think you may, maybe if, I mean, if we have, if, if, no, no, if we have a compliance framework, because a lot of sales enablement believes in compliance frameworks. And, and that's a dangerous area. I hear it all the time in sales enablement around compliance. So the paradox, coming back to the definition of the paradox, is we can be performing an exponential performance than where we are today, and yet we don't. In fact, worse. So we have the technology to perform with one person what it used to take five people to do, 10 mm -hmm. people to do, maybe even 100 people if you really rev it up with some of the, the most intense technologies. And yet instead, what we do is we've hired 13 times the number of people doing SDR work in the time frame that we enhance their ability. So we gave everybody machine guns if we were in a war scenario, which can shoot a whole lot faster. And then instead of saying, let's teach them how to use it as a precision instrument, which is pretty tough with a machine gun, we just hired a whole lot of more people and gave them all machine But so Dr. Dover, on top of that though, they, the training has been there. So the typical challenge that I've been hearing for probably 10, you know, uh, it's been amplified over 10 years now is uh, we, we, we've never had a, a tool stack as big as we have today. Uh, we've oh. never invested in more tools. Uh, we, we have uh, more people. Uh, our, our sales org has grown quarter after quarter, year after year, and we invest in training, but yet the performance has declined significantly. When I first got in this business, when I first started leading teams, we had the 80-80 rule. 80% 80 of the people made 80% of their number or greater. Now, uh, the, the data is suggesting, depends on the data you look at, but the average team in, in B2B SaaS is 40, uh, achieving 46% of target. Well, that's high. Yeah, when it I is was, high. I was at a customer this morning. I was at a customer yeah. this morning, and they said 22%. Sorry. Yeah. Dreamforce, uh, the data that I heard reported by Winning by Design all the way back in September was we were in the teens. In September, all the way back. We were in the teens. Yeah. So, it, it's, it's dropped off pretty bad. So, so with the um, investment in tools, good tools, with the investment um, in training people and, and hiring more people, why is the performance going 180 degrees the wrong way? Well, yeah, that, that's, and that's the paradox, right? That is the paradox. We, we have the tools, we have the training, we have the enablement, and yet we can't get the job done efficiently 
So we keep hiring more people. And, you know, I was talking to a vice president of a global company and he, he called me up and said, hey, we're, we're really struggling. I said, and he said, you know, our outbound just isn't as, as efficient as it used to be. And I said, well, that's probably because you need to be deploying some of the new technology. And he said, okay. And I said, before you do that, I, I really should come in and, and, and make sure you're ready for the technology. And the reason why I said that is because of this. Most companies deploy technology because they're looking at the efficiency gain. They're looking at it as an efficiency play. However, they have an underlying system that's not effective. So actually they amplify. Can you give an example? Sure. Um, so I have a system in which, let's say my, my close rate is 10%. Mm -hmm. Okay. Not, it, let's just call that what it is. It is what it is, right? We have a 10% close rate. Um, we'll call that average effectiveness. So I bring in a technology that increases my funnel, so my opportunity set. Let's say I used to have 10 opportunities a month, um, so I close one. So I bring in a technology that gives me 20 opportunities a month. So we should technically think, right, if we, if we could keep the effectiveness at the same level, so I should be able to double my sales, right? Absolutely. What inevitably happens is I actually don't double my sales. Now, think about it from the sales reps, position from before. I, I close one deal a month. Um, now I have 20 deals to choose from. Where am I going to spend my time? I wasn't looking at effectiveness, was I? I was looking at efficiency. So I doubled the pipeline up top, but I didn't hone in on the fact that I have to make sure that I actually look at my effectiveness game when I do that and say, hey, I want to keep and or better my 10%. So Instead of staying on the effectiveness game, I went for the efficiency gain. I doubled my pipeline, but I actually end up not doubling the bottom. Now, reverse. Let's let's talk about Microsoft's experience in Dublin. When they did mm -hmm. this, yep. they had an they had an 8x at so I, I'm gonna be a little iffy on this. I think it was an 8x at the the top and a 10x at the bottom. Now that's a company that focused on the effectiveness throughout the whole that the whole revenue generating architecture and said, I'm going to look at those key elements. So, so um, Jocko from winning by design says, you got to understand those metric points, those key transition points. And you got to work on that. You got to be, be watching that effectiveness measurement. And then I'm going to deploy technology. But when I deploy technology, I got to watch that little effectiveness measure that it doesn't drop when I deploy this expansion. So kind of bringing this around, I was talking to this, this guy deployed a technology and he called me back up like six months later and he said, Howard, we screwed up everything. And I said, well, tell me what happened. He said, well, we increased the number of leads, like substantially, it was like three times the number of leads we were able to get through. And I said, okay. I said, well, then what happened? He said, our sales actually went down. And I said, okay, well, that makes sense. And I said, he said, no, it doesn't make sense. I said, it does. I said, you simply increase the number of people in the pipeline, but you didn't necessarily focus on the quality and the effectiveness and the ICP. You could have used it to have better precision, but what you did is you actually expanded the number of people coming at you faster. And so your salespeople became overwhelmed. In your case, they actually performed lower 
But what often happens is you get a small increase. But here's the challenge. You're actually burning through your white space faster. Because if your addressable market has not expanded, you'll simply rip through the white space faster than you can get at it. And because your effectiveness isn't there, you actually end up with a very bad outcome coming forward. Okay. So it's, it's actually very technically challenging. So whenever, so the best companies that I've seen, I love companies who come to me and say, I need two to three salespeople. I mean, I need 10 salespeople this year. Whenever I hear them, Southwest Airlines, great example. Okay. I, I went to Southwest Airlines right after last year. Last year was a rough Christmas for Southwest Airlines. Oh, yeah. They agreed to meet with me the first week of January after they had that blow up. I was, I was surprised they kept their meeting. They said, listen, we're, we're going to let you know exactly what happened in our lives. And we, we still have a business to run here. And, and I was talking to them and I said, let's talk about your salespeople. And they said, you know, we, we, they've got a couple of hundred salespeople. And I said, okay, great. How many are you going to hire this year? And they said, I think we're going to hire three. I said, okay, how many of that's going to be expansion? How many of that's going to be attrition? And they said, well, none of it will be attrition. We think two will get promoted, and we think we're going to add one more sales position. And I said, okay, well, how are sales going? Oh, they're going through that. Our sales are going up. Now, here's the interesting observation. I, walked, I was walking on the floor. Their analytics team, for that group was right next to their sales team. And there were a lot of analytics people. I don't, I don't, I didn't count them all, but it was, it was big. They were analyzing the data constantly looking at what it, what are they focused on there? Effectiveness. So, so a, a couple of different questions here. And I think you talk about this in the chapter on the potential for innovation, where you, you, you suggest that organizations can achieve 10 to 50x the outcomes with the proper deployment of technology with lower headcount, right? With so, lower headcount. And, and so you're talking about, well, first of all, you're talking about people being on a floor, which a lot of organizations are so remote and separated, yeah. and, right? So put that off to the side. But is, is that what you mean? And so when you talked about the uh, initial example of 10 opportunities and they closed one, so 10% close rate, instead of looking for 20 opportunities, would they be better at trying to hone in on increasing that 10% close rate to a 20% close rate? Yes, absolutely. So tighten it with ICP, tighten it with messaging, tighten it with with skill, right? Tighten everything on the efficiency component or on the effectiveness component, right? Do I have my messaging right? Do I have my targeting right? Am I talking to the right people? Do I have the right skills to talk to the right people? Do I have the right messaging? Do I understand how to do this? Do I know how to, do, do I understand all my key performance metrics? Am I, have I gotten about as much of that as I can possibly get? Now, if I could do all that first, then I add the technology component. That's where we get exponential gain. Absolutely exponential gain. So what's preventing this from happening? Is it, is it the, I think you called it the classic sales machine. Is it yeah. that there are these, you know, for a lot, like, you know, old school leaders who don't understand this technology that 
are preaching an archaic way of doing things and they don't know how to get uh, out of this hole? I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to attack a little bit the concept of old school because I don't think it's fair to them. Right. And I'm just going to put it out there. I don't think it's fair. We have a self-perpetuating process in sales. And that is that we live in a survival of the fittest model. <clears throat> when we hire experienced salespeople, what do we mean? Uh, if, if I'm going to say, hey, I only hire experienced salespeople, that means we're probably hiring people who survived a non, right? If I'm willing to hire people with zero experience, I'm probably in a survival of the fittest shop. Whether that's door to door, it's B to B, it's it's you know it's it's in a it's in a telecom a teleconference room, you know, in the te in in a room in a call center where it, you know it's I, I'm not saying it's boiler room, but it's a survival of the fittest. If I can survive that for two to three years, then I know how to sell. That's not true. I know how to survive, and I know how to do enough belly to belly that I can run into luck, and occasionally I can get somebody to agree to my deal because they just need my product. I may develop skill if I'm lucky or I'm focused, but for the most part, I'm a good enough seller and I survive. How do we promote managers? Well, we promote managers who rise to the top of a good enough world. We don't train them how to be managers. So they survive being a manager because they're the survival of the fittest managers and they live in a good enough world. So we live in a good enough world and I call that the classic sales machine because it's self-perpetuating, it keeps flowing. When we talk about you fall into this profession, you don't usually choose it. Right, so is, that the, same, is that the same thing as saying, uh, I want an experienced salesperson. Well, what do you mean? I want someone with at least 10 years. Oh, yeah. But all too often, it's it's not. They don't have ten years of experience. They have one year of experience ten times, and, sure. and they they didn't they didn't grow and evolve and hone their skills necessarily. They were more like I think what you're saying is surviving over that period, and then it's yeah. like oh well, you, now we're going to promote you, and you fall into that same category a, as a leader. Listen, yeah, prospecting to get your own pipelines rough. So a lot of a lot of what we're doing is we're going after mindset, right? We're Right, you have to, you have your skill set, your tool set, and your mindset. So a lot of people kind of throw out the tool set, um, or they 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 hope the tool set's magic. Um, they don't focus on the skill set. Skill set is an individual choice. You choose the degree that you skill up in this profession. If you're lucky enough to be with a great company that actually focuses on your skill set. Boy, I hope you realize how lucky you are. If you run that kind of a shop, good luck keeping it and good congratulations for running it because you're, you're probably tilting towards world class if you're really being world class. If you're focusing on your ICPs, you're understanding your buyer set, you're, you're trying to make sure you're, you're, you're responsive to what the buyer needs, then it comes down to market dominance. How fast can you get out there? Now it's about scaling. But what people tend to do is they don't do making sure the product's good. They don't make sure the skill set's right. They don't make sure the tool set's right. They go for the mindset. Hey, if you can survive this, I need survivors. I want you to take that hill. I want you to just take that <laughs> hill. And I took that hill before, and I just need people who can go take the hill. Now, what this does to us is we end up with, no offense to all the bros out there, but we end up with a bro culture type A D personality sets 
in the disk profile sets that are all the same. And then they go out and talk to buyers. And by the way, guess what? <gasps> buyers aren't all these. Oh my goodness. Buyers have different personalities. And so what's really amazing is these other personalities could be amazing at sales. My favorite person ever so far in years at UTD was this girl. Her name's Jasmine. I told her that I talked to tell her story all the time. And um, she came into my office. I, I swear she looked like a little mouse. She was as quiet as a mouse. She was a sophomore. And I said, would you like to go in sales? And she wouldn't look me in the eye. She goes, I don't know. I'm not I an was extrovert. Like, I was like, oh, my goodness. I don't think she should get into my classes. I don't think she can handle my classes. And I asked her a lot of questions. I did a deep discovery. And I was like, God, I'm just not convinced that this would help this girl. And I said, you know, I... Normally, I would tell you yes, but I really don't know with you. I said, if you if you want to commit to transforming your life, you show up to my class. But I just I just don't know if this is going to be good for you because I'd, I'd hate for it to be the worst experience of your college career. So she shows up the first day of class. I'm like, oh, interesting. Let's see how this one goes. She went into the sales competition. She didn't do very well, which we've we've now learned that doesn't matter. But that's right. That's the D. By the way, all those Ds go. Hey, they can't win that sales competition that you do. I'm not going to hire them. I'm only going to hire the winners. You know, and she didn't do well. She didn't do well. Three hundred and sixty percent of her quota, highest in her class. Now she went into the summer, closed one hundred and sixty thousand dollars in business four times higher than the next highest student account manager in our program. She still holds the record. She went into her senior year as our sales enablement specialist, trained all the other kids. She is one of the most impressive people. She just reported to me in her second, I, I, well, okay, I, I'll be careful now because I won't say where she's at. Do yeah. <laughs> 150% of her number when she hit accelerators in her second second um, quarter in the business. Oh, and what what were the key ingredients here? Effectiveness. She knows her skills. She's got her skill set down. And she harnesses technology. Okay. So, I mean, when you when you say she has her skill set down, is that what you're talking about before? I, um, ICP, no. the messaging, right? So the, the, the core basics, you know, asking questions, active listening, that type of stuff. And then, no, it's, and it's and then it's frameworks. It's understanding that the buyer is on a journey that is a jobs to be done framework, and there's a lot of different buyers, and they may or may not be able to make a choice depending. I could tell you right now, hey, I'm going to buy your product, but my but my wife won't let me, or my boss won't let me. So are you so saying you that Jasmine? Are you saying that Jasmine had the skill set to be able to say, okay, uh, Doctor Dover of uh, I know you want to buy it, but you know I've been in these situations before. And you, when someone wants it and they're all in, there's usually someone else in the organization that wants to get their paw prints on this that might have other priorities. Like, was it whatever the skill set was? Was it her ability to get around? So, that? if if I were to go on the mindset, it'd be two things that I would say, and it, it comes back to a dear friend of mine who told me this ten years, fifteen years ago. He said, "If you can do two things, I can do the rest." He said, "Number one, make sure that they are coachable." which means they're agile, right? Mm -hmm. Coachable is I can learn new things and do things differently after I've learned. 
It's not just that I'm learning, it's that I'm adjusting my approach based off the feedback I'm getting. Whether I'm getting that feedback by my customer reacting poorly to me or my manager training me, right? I'm constantly in a state of adjusting my skills to the feedback I'm getting. The second one is she is one of the best people to follow up in our program. She was introverted, but always on top of it. Most people don't follow up. If I got an amazing mindset, see, once again, we live in a good enough world. If I, if I close my deals, I'm going to go out and party tomorrow. Introvert doesn't party tomorrow. They go out, they go at it, they go at it, they go at it, they Brian go at it. it. She outperforms because she hustles more than the others. And she's got the skill set and the mindset. She, she's got the framework where she understands that the buyer is in a journey that's based off a jobs-to-be-done framework. She understands how to assess that. She knows which customers need nurturing. She knows which customers need to move. Mm-hmm. She thinks mm-hmm. about this. She she uses the right tools. She right, does the right discovery. She's managing this process using tools and frameworks. So when she contacts the customer, she doesn't say things like, just check it in. Check it in. I'm the new rep. Yeah. She comes in and says, hey, I took a look and saw that you're actually reducing the number of people you're, sell- you're hired over the last two years. But from what I can see on your LinkedIn account, it looks like you're going to now increase the number of people you're hiring by 1,000%. I was wondering if you needed to have a partnership with us to be able to achieve those goals. Show me you know me. So I use data, I use information in a relevant setting and say, where are you at? Would we be relevant to you? If so, let's get busy and let's get this done. And the, there's the curious element is using the questions too. I mean, it's a little bit oh. cliche, but it's one of the bigger challenges we hear all the time is, hey, so what's preventing your sales force from you know, getting better outcomes? Oh, we jumped to the demo too fast. Oh, yeah. Why does that happen? I think I think Sherry Levitin, Sherry Levitin calls that premature pre- presenting, right? Or premis, premature elaboration, pre- premature demonstration. <laughs> it's pervasive. It's, it, 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 well, it is pervasive because what we want to see once again, this comes back to the hacked economy, right? I only have the skill of demoing. I only have the skill of trying to get to the demo. So I'm trying to get to that moment that I, I'm processing my customer. We've been teaching people for years to process them to a moment or an outcome. And those moments and outcomes are the meeting, the demo, and the first purchase, right? Mm-hmm. Getting the first install base mm-hmm. in, in the SaaS mm-hmm. economy. Um, we're not necessarily, so I'm, I'm keyed in on the sales side to get you to a moment that is my metric. I'm processing you through my metrics and my concepts. But the top seller actually ter- pulls back and says, AT&T contacted us once and said, hey, y- what are you doing over there? Because they were working S&B. Our, the students that we sent over to AT&T's academy were doing S&B. And this one young lady, she's supposed to be selling S&B, right? She's working S&B accounts. She brings in like a $200,000 opportunity. And she still holds the record. This was like four or five years ago. She still holds the record. What did she do? She did discovery. How dare, 
How dare she ask questions instead of just process the customer? She didn't process the customer. She said, hmm, tell me about what you're trying to accomplish here. Oh, well, okay, but then why are you trying to do that? Oh, well, then why are you trying to do that? So why, why do you just want a cell phone? I mean, did you know that we had other solutions? Can I, can I try to understand more about your business? And she just kept on doing discovery. And then she said, well, actually, I think you need more than a cell phone. I think you need a whole bunch. Of, and let me, let me bring in all that AT&T has to offer. And she all of a sudden had a $280,000 opportunity. And they went, oh, my gosh. And I'm like, why aren't more of your people coming out with those kind of opportunities? Because right. we, we're, we're teaching them to process them. And, and that's a really good example because everybody wants more deals, bigger deals, and, and faster deals. But they also say a challenge is that the team is jumping to the demo, premature demonstration, and they're demonstrating all the different features and benefits of the product instead of asking a whole bunch of questions and saying, well, you don't just need this. You, you need the stack, right? Well, and, well, here's, and, and here's why. And part of the challenge is, once again, I, I, I kind of harp on the jobs to be done framework because it's such an integral part of what we teach at UTD now. Um, listen, if, if you're at the vendor selection process, if you're at the vendor selection state of the jobs to be done framework, you already know what you want. You already know what you think the problem is. You've already searched. You've already created your requirements. And you're, you're at a decision point. Listen, the way I'm going to talk to you is very, very different in discovery at that moment. In fact, I'm going to use a challenger model on you um, because I got, to, I got to dislodge you. I've got, to, I've got to be pretty aggressive under these conditions. I'm not going to go discovery at this stage. I'm going to go challenger-esque on you. Um, but if I'm all the way back at problem ID and I'm actually on the wrong problem, I'm actually going to use challenger again. Um, but if you've got the right problem, then I'm going to have to understand the degree to which it's actionable and how deep is it, what's the opportunity, and am I the right fit um, given what the problem is. If the diagnosis, I, I should know who I'm competing against right at that moment. I should know whether I'm differentiated in that space. What is the reason you need to choose me over the other people? And if you're not in the space then I have to go with, gee, I'm just charismatic, cute. And I, you know, I'm not that cute and I'm not that charismatic. So I've actually had to learn skill because I'm not funny and I'm not handsome. So, and I, you know, I'm not nepotistic. I don't know where your skeletons are. So I actually have to have skill, unfortunately. So I actually train people to have the same. Um, now, some people get lucky. You know, when all things are equal, maybe I think you're cute. Maybe I think you're funny. Maybe I'd like to go to a ball game with you. But, you know, that assumes that I don't have a buying committee. Yeah, uh, I, you know, so those days are those days are more and more behind us. I, I think uh, uh, they are and they're not right. I mean, it depends on the business. It, it's it's funny. It's funny what works and what doesn't work. What people hold on to, but we hold on to what's comfortable and what we know because it's what we've done. It's what we've been trained. And and to be honest with you, let's be real about and it, let's let's give those people a little bit of credit that we call old school and classic. It's it's actually. It's actually what they know, and it's how they built their career. They've been able to generate revenue for years with what they know. And for us to come around and say, hey, by the way, you're doing it wrong. I went into a, a, a room with 11 bankers in Dallas. That was one of the toughest assignments I ever got. 
I had one of our partners that said, hey, I'd like you to come train our top bankers, all make over a million dollars a year. I want you to come in and tell them that they're doing it wrong and they need to start socially selling. And um, <laughs> I walked in the room and I, I'll tell you, every, every bit of body language in that room was, okay, punk, what are you going to teach us? And they were using my PhD, right? They were saying, hey, this guy's a doctor. He's a professor at UTD. We're bringing him in to tell you to buck it up and do something different. They were, they were using my title to try to get their, their point across. So I walk in the room and I see every, I, I mean, everybody had their, if they yeah. didn't have their arms Hostages. crossed. Hostages. If their their face was crossed, you know, and I just looked at them all and I said, can we establish one thing right now? I don't know how to do your job. And you do. And if you didn't, you wouldn't be in the room. So I don't know how to do your job. You know how to do your job. And that's not what we're talking about. I said, no. Can we also establish a second fact? All of you want to do one of two things. You either want to make more money or work less hours. Or you want to do both. Can we establish that? All of a sudden they go, all right. <clears throat> this guy doesn't know he's anything. <clears throat> he knows he doesn't know how to do our job. Start getting that hands up and crossed. <clears throat> and then I said, so could we maybe discuss that when you take a client out to go golfing half a day, and I'm not saying you shouldn't, but when his son or his daughter takes over the business, they aren't even going to want to talk to you on the phone. Mm -hmm. And you're going to think you have the business and you won't have the business because they want you to text and use social media. And now let's go to your social media pages and see what you have to show them and you'll lose the business because you don't know what I'm talking about. So how about we talk about that? And the whole room went, by the break, they're like, they went up to their boss and goes, we should have had this years ago. I'm glad you brought him in. This is really useful, right? But it's, it's not their fault, right? It's what they validated on. It's, what, it's the reason they get the job. It's the reason they have the high paying jobs. The reason they are the manager is because they know how to do it the way they know how to do it. But we're in a world that's changing. And the buyers are saying, based off Gartner Research, that what you've been doing to me, I don't like it. In fact, I don't find it useful. And that's why I'm not going to talk to you when you call me on the phone anymore. So let, uh, clearly, there need to be changes in terms of the sourcing, sure. uh, the interviewing of candidates. But let's just, like, as we close out here, they, uh -huh. let's say there's good people on these, on these teams. And let's say they're curious. They recognize that they lack the, the skill set to, 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 you know, what got them here is not going to get them there. Right. What's your advice to that group of people? So my first piece of advice is, um, honestly, if I'm a leader, if I'm a leader, uh, my first piece of advice is, there is probably a university sales program within uh, a three to four hour drive of your location right now. Go find it and go get involved with it. What does go that mean? Oh, like just like get it for, for get people who aren't familiar with this. What does get involved mean? No, Take a class? Uh, just, no, just contact them and say how, 
how can I get, how can I support your program? How can I be engaged in your program? How can I learn with your students what you're teaching and what those young people are wanting to do as prospecting? Because if you haven't been doing that, I would like to point out you're out of touch with the future of your buying community. You don't know what those buy, let me tell you, they're not you, they're Z's. They're not even millennials. You millennials got to go back to college and meet the Z's. They're not like you at all. And soon they're going to be the people you manage. They're probably the, the people that quit on you all the time and you don't know why. So get there and start figuring out how to engage that group of people. And then learn from those professors. Learn from the people who show up at those events. World-class companies go to universities to recruit constantly and support programs like this. Then um, you got to be tapping into sources like Gartner, Forrester, you got to be you got to be plugged into the trend line moves that are going on. You, you know, if you're not if you're not involved in in reading Gartner and some of the other research, let's get out of the hack economy. I I'd say read my book, but you know, hey, read books, plural. Um, you know, go listen to a Beck Holland. Go listen to I think Beck's doing some great work. There's some people doing great work that are questioning the status quo right now. Go out and talk, figure out why are they, what are they saying? What are they talking about? Listen, we're in a different world than where we started. And what you know equips you for the job you have, but does not equip you to actually generate the kind of revenue you used to in the future. And if you want to be relevant, you got to adjust. You've got to learn to constantly adjust and quit scaling just scale frameworks, don't scale tactical. Tactical is dangerous to scale because it won't work by the time you scaled it. And um, William, we're going to put the notes to uh, the sales innovation paradox uh, in, the, in the show notes. We'll provide a link there. Uh, Dr. Dover, in terms of uh, if, you know, how people can see what uh, the University of Texas at Dallas is doing or what you're putting out there, is there a place they can go to learn more? LinkedIn is the best place to follow me. And then if you want to follow what UTD is doing, hashtag UTD sales. Um, I, I actually like the AISP group. Um, mm -hmm. That's a great conference. Um, I, you know, I go to Dreamforce, the sales summits within Dreamforce. Um, you know, the Sales Enablement Society is a good place that I've learned things. Um, you know, Sales Management Association that, that does some good stuff. I, listen, get involved. Get involved with your peers. Uh, Pavilion, you know, great place as well. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, that's kind of the modern place. But be careful also as well as you go to these to realize that 80 to 90% of the people there are talking about classic sales machines. So you've, you've got to open your ears. I oh, actually tend it. to. Yeah, and I've actually found that like at AEISP, I, I actually don't find people who are classic. I, I actually see a lot of innovation there. And then um, when Gartner does their events, I tend to find people who are the innovators. The, 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 the world-class sales organizations tend to go to those types of things. Um, and you, you be around people who are in non-competing space and you'll be able to ask, you know, go, go talk to people who are doing impressive things. And I think what you're, what, what I'm hearing there is, uh, if you want to do something different, find people who are doing things that you, where you say, huh, I never thought of that before. 
Yeah. Meaning like to get out of that paradigm, get out of that classic sales machine. Uh, listen, uh, I highly, highly, highly recommend the book, uh, Dr. Dover. It got me way out of my comfort zone and challenged a lot of the things that, you know, that, that I think and, you know, that I preach and, and realize that, I mean, I always, I know, I know that I don't have all the answers, um, but it, it gave a totally different way to think about it. And it answered uh, some of the problems that, you know, scratch your head and say, why does this happen? Uh, the sales innovation paradox address that. So thank you for putting that out there. Thanks for spending time with us. And um, I, I really appreciate the time that you invested in the work that you're doing to create the next generation of, of salespeople and sales leaders. Thank you. Well, thank you. I, I, I think what the book has done for me is it's given me language to describe the challenges of our day. And, and it gives me a framework to, to be able to have a conversation like we're having today with language that allows us to come to common ground and say, okay, then how do we fix it? Yeah. Frameworks, not hacks, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, some, well, some hackers are going to come after me. I know they're going to come after me. With their well, you know, the, 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 well, the people that wrote the book, whatever the pick the book, but, uh, you know, you know, cold calling is, is dead. X, Y, Z is dead. It, you know, it sells because people don't want to do that. So they want to really believe yeah. that you don't have to, uh, to be successful. But what you're saying is, uh, you can, you can achieve exponential outcomes, but you got to put the work in, you have to put the work in and you can't be better. You can't be perceived as better unless you perceive this different. You know, it, if we can end with this, it, this, is a, this is a bit of a calling to me. It, it really, listen, we, we, we have millions of people in this country that do one of the hardest jobs in the world. They get rejected every day. And uh, it's a tough job. And, you know, you're, you're giving up, um, you're giving up your favorite pastime. You're giving up time with family if you're married. Um, when you're not achieving your objectives, you're underutilizing the talent, the time, and you're underperforming, which hurts you. And it's a sad thing. You're going to give up 40 to 50 hours, maybe even 60 hours of your life a week. How about we spend time making sure we're really good at it and that we're compensated phenomenally for it? Let's get out of the good enough world and let's let's become professionals. Let's uh, listen. If I could make ten times what my neighbor's making, why don't you do it? Just do it. Go figure out how. It. There are people who are doing it, and when you find that community, they want to help each other. They actually want to be. They come together. They try to learn from each other because they know they're surrounded by a majority of the classics that are not going to do any of this. So they know they can outperform and out hustle. Just choose to be one because you're putting forth the effort, you know, make, make your, make your dreams come true. Make the time you spend worth it. That's why I'm, that's why I'm trying to figure this out. I really, it really is. A, it is a calling to me to say, listen, I'm really sad that there's a lot of people out there who are not able to accomplish their goals and are not able to take care of their families or not able to do what they want to do because they just don't know what we're talking about right now. Amen to that. It's a it total, and, and you provide a framework for uh, you know, spitting them up and, and giving them reason uh, 
to take action, like helping them, you know, show what that path is. So thanks for doing that, Dr. Dover. Much appreciated. And thanks for investing time with us today. And um, for all of you out there, uh, if you're tuning in and you made it this far, firstly, thanks for listening. Secondly, it would mean a lot if you could leave a, a rating on the show, wherever you're consuming your podcast, engage, tell us what you like, tell us uh, what you want to see more of. And we want to provide information and content and guests that will help you get that extra degree, take that step forward, get better like Dr. Dover talked about. Um, and with that, it's been a pleasure to host this conversation on behalf of Coach to Scale. And until next time, remember, coach them if you want to keep them. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Coach to Scale, How Modern Leaders Build Coaching Cultures. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at coachem.io. That's C-O-A-C-H-E-M dot I-O. And follow us on Twitter at Coachem Now. See you all next week. Thanks for joining. And remember, coach them if you want to keep them.